Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service, where we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. In early July, Montrell Jackson, a police officer in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, issued a call for calm following the police shooting of an unarmed black man. Don't let hate infect your heart, he wrote. Just over a week later, he was dead. The man who killed him and two other officers, 29-year-old Gavin Long, had called online for police oppression to be met with violence. You've got to fight back. That's the only way a bully knows to quit. He doesn't know words. Long had passed links to radical groups, among them the anti-government sovereign citizens movement and Nation of Islam, but Long insisted in a recent YouTube video that he acted independently. His attack highlights a growing problem for governments and security services, that of the lone wolf terrorist, attackers who act without direct external command. A 2015 Georgetown University study found that the number of lone wolf attacks in the US increased by 143% between the 1970s and the 2000s. Other Western states have faced similar threats, and Mohamed Boulel, who drove a truck through crowds in the French city of Nice last Thursday, was among the most dangerous. The Islamist group ISIS claimed responsibility for the attack, its third such assault on France, though it is unlikely that the group directly instructed it. France's interior minister, Bernard Cazeneuve, said that Boulel must have been persuaded by the group's calls for its supporters to carry out attacks. US President Barack Obama had this to say. We don't know all the details, but what we know is the capacity of even a single individual to do extraordinary harm to our people, to our way of life. Joining me to discuss is Hilary Hurd, who has studied religious-inspired violence and strategies for post-conflict rehabilitation. Hilary now works for an anti-corruption organization focusing on defense and security. And Erin Marie Saltman, who is a senior researcher at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. I'm Josh Lowe, a political reporter here at Newsweek's Europe Bureau in London. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. So to start with, just before we move into the details of some of these cases, um, I wanted to look uh, for listeners who are skeptical or unsure how do we define uh, the, the lone wolf attacker or the lone wolf terrorist? What is the difference between that and someone who just perpetrates a random mass killing? Erin, um, perhaps we could start with you. 
Well, actually, we spent a lot of time at our institute working with a number of other think tanks, including Chatham House, the Royal United Services Institute, and Leiden University to try to come up with a refined definition. And, and what this group of people came up with was that a lone actor terrorist is the threat or use of violence by a single perpetrator or small cell not acting out of purely personal material reasons with the aim of influencing a wider audience and who acts without any direct support in the planning, preparation, and execution of the attack, and whose decision to act is not directed by any group or other individuals, although it's possible that they were inspired by such. So fairly comprehensive. There. Fairly comprehensive. Um, <laughs> is, um, it, and, and, and is this something that you, you would agree this is becoming more of a serious problem? That seems to be the general weight of opinion. Is that something you Well, you actually, share? we've always had periods of lone actor terrorism in the West, we're currently experiencing a rise in these phenomenons, especially in the last two years. And what we see is when you have one attack, it's often the case that sometimes you get copycats or people mimicking that soon after. So you can start to almost trend this phenomena, which is when it gets really dangerous. Hmm. And Hillary, is this something that you've, is that broadly a definition you'd share or do you want to take issue with anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really powerful metaphor because we always, you know, think of wolves in packs and this idea of a, lo a lone wolf sort of seems almost like an oxymoron. Um, but I guess they kind of believe themselves um, in committing an act of atrocity to be part of that pack. Um, but like you said, it seems like something that's always happened and sort of curiously happening now more often than maybe it has in the past. Well, there's also, it's, What's interesting is that, especially in the aftermath of uh, the last couple of years where we've seen these waves of foreign terrorist fighters or individuals grouping around certain more violent ideologies, there's a very big difference between the type of person that wants to join a group and wants to carry out violence within a group and feel empowered by a brotherhood or a sisterhood, and then the type of individual that starts being reclusive from society, keeping to themselves, but harboring an ideology more secretly. Mm. And, and picking up on that, it, you know, that, that is kind of the question here, isn't it? Someone like Gavin Long, who perpetrated this attack in Baton Rouge that we mentioned in the intro, um, as you say, some of these people can be quite reclusive. They can be quite independent, almost by definition. They're lone wolves. How, how hard is it to uh, predict their behavior, to track them, to, to identify them? Well, that is the big question. Uh, actually, there are some trends that we start to see. We definitely see higher rates of mental health disorders among individuals that are lone wolf perpetrators. However, mental health issue can mean anything from depression to schizophrenia. And obviously there's a huge difference between paranoid schizophrenia and depression. So 35% of lone wolves in a study of 120 incidences had recorded mental health disorders of different forms. But to be fair, among the general public, that's about 27%. So it's perhaps not as obviously higher than average. And in a lot of these cases, perhaps they just weren't recorded. So the issues around actually diagnosing individuals with mental health is poor, depending on the country that you're in. Yeah. What I think is so, so interesting about Gavin Long, as well as how many groups he was a part of over the course of his lifetime, it wasn't as if he had you know, joined a radical group or associated with it at a young age and sort of been loyal to it, but consistently kind of shifted his allegiances, which I think would make it all the more difficult to kind of monitor and track, you know, potential lone wolf attackers. Um, and also, I mean, just because someone espouses radical ideas, as I'm sure you know, doesn't necessarily make them um, prone to violence. Um, there's a, I think it's hard, it must be hard for government officials to kind of distinguish, uh, you know, the threshold of the threat. 
one, especially online, because actually our voices online are more extreme. So just a banal example of any of us is you don't go online to say that you kind of liked a restaurant. You go online to say you really loved it or you really hated it. Yeah. So extreme voices are catered to in a lot of online spheres. And you see individuals that would say all sorts of things online. And the vast majority of those people will never carry out violent attacks, even to say, oh, we should kill all of this subset of people. There's a lot of people that actually have very violent undertones and they shouldn't be monitored or surveyed by the government. So it's really difficult right now, especially to try to track that. Yeah, exactly. Especially since that speech is protected in the United States. I mean, calling for the overthrow of government by violent means is a protected, you know, right, unless there's an imminent danger associated with it. So it would be, I think, wrong in some cases to make too big of a list of people to be monitoring. Mm. And and so we're kind of identifying here that there are um, perhaps clues about people's mental state, but that might be the same as members of the normal population. People might say radical things, but so might people who are at no risk of violence. Are there particular tells or clues that, that governments or security services can use to, to define who is just uh, someone mouthing off and who is someone who is posing a risk? Well, that is being discussed increasingly. And there are a couple things. Basically, it takes more than one factor. Any one factor that we're going to discuss here would create too many false positives. If you took all the people that said they wanted to kill someone online, all of your services would be <laughs> way over the threshold. However, if you look at that sort of speech in conjunction with mental health issues and in conjunction with the acquirement of arms, perhaps, then you can start narrowing down maybe a finer list. In both of these cases, individuals were arming themselves, especially in the Nice attack that we're going to speak about in a moment. They're acquiring arms through illegal means, and sometimes those money trails or trails of armament are perhaps easier than a more elusive hate speech online. And um, in fact, we've touched on a bit there some of the mental health aspect of this. And uh, something about Long is that he uh, did express some sort of fairly paranoid um, opinions about government surveillance. He thought of himself as um, part of, uh, you know, a subset of society called targeted individuals, people who believe they're being harassed with mind control weapons by armies of stalkers. Is, is that kind of state, that sense of sort of people are out to get me, um, I'm being driven away from society, is that something we find among people at risk of this sort of violence? Well, yes and no. We Again, the profiles of lone actor terrorists are really diverse, and we always want to find that golden goose, that golden thing that will allow us to predetermine individuals. But especially when we're dealing with people that are searching for identity, people that are searching for meaning. So obviously, in this case especially, he had gone to different groups, as we mentioned. He was searching for empowerment through different means. And the saddest part is that that wasn't channeled elsewhere. That was channeled towards a violent means. His empowerment was found through violence. And so oftentimes in society, especially when we're dealing with paranoid individuals, if there aren't social structures to assist that person or lead them away from violent pathways, then they're just left to their own spiraling. I do think it's quite interesting, the studies that have been done into paranoia of government surveillance um, and, and trying to kind of to figure out what, you know, what drives this paranoia. And really, and in a lot of cases, they found that it's a fear of being alone, a fear of being isolated, which, you know, almost seems the exact opposite of what a fear of being watched would imply. Um, and so, I mean, not to sort of provide some organizing principle for when these 
what drives these lone wolf attackers. But it, it seems to me like the sense of alienation, mar- marginalization or perceived marginalization is a common thread across some of the attacks that we've seen this year, even though the manifestation of that marginalization might look might look different in every case. We've mentioned there some themes of kind of alienation, some sense that people feel they have an actual thing in society they want to change. Um, we're going to come on later, to, as we've said, to discuss the, the Nice attack, which was claimed by ISIS. But but Gavin Long was, was motivated by very different concerns. And, and how does this act of violence fit in with the genuine problem of racial tension in the United States? You know, where how do we... How do we uh, maybe take the anger that people are feeling and channel it into doing something positive and legitimate to address those genuine concerns rather than doing something uh, appalling? Well, we're kind of at a, a tipping point right now with the current affairs going on in the States. You have mass protests on the streets, complete uh, disillusionment with authority, complete lack of trust. So the other problem is that actually when you look at certain forms of extremist radicalization, like Islamist extremist radicalization, it's more likely that they're telling family members or friends. Far-right radicalization, they're actually more open about posting it online, mostly because they're less censored online. Uh, And in this case, if you have somebody like Gavin Long, and it's quite possible that he probably had friends or relatives that were concerned about him, especially because of his previous tendencies, but if they have absolutely no trust in authorities because of what's going on with police, because of the media around security and authority, who are you going to trigger or tell about an individual you're concerned with? So when we have this breakdown of trust between civil society and security, you're almost making this void for individuals to not receive any assistance in the help that they need. I think, though, one interesting thing about the the Alton Sterling shooting, which prompted um, the attack, was that the, the outrage was universal. Um, this was a case of, I think, an entire country being alarmed um, that this kind of thing could happen. Um, and it's you know, shocking that we've seen maybe too many of these instances in such a short period of time. Um, but in that way, I think because we're all outraged, I imagine it's all the more difficult to sort of sift through the individual posts of outrage that you know, might be made online or on social media, given how... Um, you know, how similar a lot of our feelings really are about this, but how dissimilar the means that we'd be willing to use to affect that outrage are. And that's just for the benefit of listeners, obviously, Alton Sterling, who's one of a um, growing number of, of black men who've been killed by police, um, prompting this kind of, uh, this anger. I mean, and, and another part of this, and if we're talking about violence in the US, we can't really dodge the subject of gun control. Um, to what extent, obviously, Controlling access to arms can't be the be-all and end-all because we don't want people to be wanting to commit these acts. But to what extent does that have to be a first step or is it is it slightly beside the point? Well, I think getting rid of guns doesn't get rid of violence um, as a first point. I mean, we saw yesterday there was an attack in northern Bavaria with an axe. We just saw an attack in Nice with a truck. But that doesn't mean that America doesn't have a gun problem. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, ridiculous loopholes um, at both the state and federal level about the kinds of guns that can be purchased um, and the lack of background checks that need to be conducted um, on a state basis. So it seems like there's a lot that can be done to mitigate the likelihood of a lone wolf attack, um, but perhaps that won't solve the issue entirely. And we're talking about types of armament. So there is a right to bear arms, but there's a very big difference between the range of types of guns that we're seeing that are being sold to civilians. Uh, These are not just hunting equipment, and it's not just protection. We're talking about mass shooting 
material that facilitates you taking out a huge number of people without having to aim very well, without having to actually know how to use a gun very well. And, and America has extortionately high numbers of gun killings compared to any other country. So I think just looking at the numbers, obviously there is a problem. America has more mass shootings than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and so it's, it's an issue of, of background checks, the fact that we still have seen consistently individuals that have known mental health issues of a range of different types, as well as backgrounds that have perhaps violent or petty crime within their backgrounds, being able to very easily acquire uh, mass shooting arms. And this is definitely a problem. And um, we've talked there about you know, the U.S.'s long history of mass shootings. Um, what's the difference you know, which of these would we class as kind of lone wolf attacks like the one we're talking about now, like the Gavin Long attack? And uh, which of these, you know, for example, Columbine, is that something we would class as a lone wolf attack? Or is that that's something more random and, and, and less defined? What, what do we think about that? Well, with Columbine, it really depends on political motivations, ideological motivations behind an attack. So there's a difference between a random sociopathic attack and one that is aimed at a specific political cause to cause awareness. So the target with Gavin Long was at this momentum around police violence towards a certain subset of society. It was very specifically to make a statement and very specifically to make this very strong, loud voice heard against the system. Uh, And a lot of times it's very hard to draw the line between the health disorder and the crime. Because as soon as you tie yourself to a cause, it becomes a terrorist offense. Uh, And we've seen this even with individuals that have carried out ISIS attacks, where as soon as they have a black flag, then we ignore the fact that they might have a history of mental illness, and we just look at the fact that this is a terrorist attack. Interestingly, we haven't seen that as much in some other cases, like the murder of MP Joe Cox. People quickly talked about his mental health disorder, but didn't talk about the fact that this was a lone actor terrorist offense. It was a political cause. And just to interrupt there, that's uh, the the British politician Joe Cox who was killed. Um, There's a suspicion that um, it may have been partly motivated by uh, concerns about uh, nationhood and Britishness and that sort of thing. But you're right, people didn't jump to call that a terrorist offense. I mean, he yelled Britain first before carrying out the attack. And there is also some talk about discrimination and racial profiling about how we determine who is a terrorist and who is a perhaps lone actor that is not a terrorist. So this word gets publicized and has a lot of political weight behind it. So in both of these cases that we're discussing today, we also have to question our own stereotypes around what we classify as terrorism and what we classify as something else. Yeah, I think it's quite easy to conflate as well, you know, the causes of violence and the justification of violence. And in the day we live in, I mean, I think it's there's a lot more currency to Islamic extremism. And I think it's probably easier to resort to that rationale, which is perceived by some to be more noble than just a mass shooting when doing something that perhaps in some cases might have been done anyway. Could I just get you to define those two terms? You said causes of violence and justification of violence. We shouldn't conflate them. What, what What's the difference? So I think there's a difference between someone having a deeply held political or religious belief um, and being led, you know, to, to violence as a result of that belief, and then someone being prone to violence, and then justifying that violence with a radical belief that may or may not be deeply held. There are plenty of people, as we were discussing earlier, who have radical beliefs. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. But would never use violence to enact them. And plenty who use violence but don't necessarily justify that violence with radical ideas. Um, and so I think that distinction is, is really important. Now, what about the attack in Nice last Thursday? Um, Mohamed Boulel killed more than 84 people with a truck in an attack claimed by ISIS. Boulel's direct association with the group is likely to have been limited and restricted to the internet. And it highlights how ISIS, with its regular calls to supporters to mount attacks, can inspire devastating lone wolf attacks with little effort. Former director of the NSA and CIA, Michael Hayden, has warned of the danger. What ISIS has done has created a narrative that there is unrelenting hostility between Islam and the West, between Islam and, and Christianity. Just to start with, before we discuss this specific case, is, is ISIS, a lot of what they do seems to be calling for uh, supporters, sympathizers overseas to go out and do these things. You know, they have issued calls for people to use vehicles before Nice, for example. To what extent is, is that group and its quite um, sort of industrialized propaganda increasing the threat of, from lone wolf attacks around the world? Well, actually, this threat is increasing at the moment because the previous call to action by ISIS was to come and join the state, come to Syria and Iraq or come try to join us physically. It was a physical call to arms to build a state. And state building is very different than what they're currently doing. What we see right now is actually ISIS is losing territory on the grounds. They are losing on their home front. They are losing men, 
They are losing power. They're losing ground. And so this switch of tactic is actually really similar to al-Qaeda post 9-11, because what you can do is if you force the fear to be exported, this is asymmetrical warfare. So despite the fact that they're depleting in their actual power, by having lone wolf attacks, by calling people to carry out this type of attack, it increases fear, it increases the power you think that they have over you, and it's a perfect way for them to seem bigger than they really are. And of course they're going to claim that they were responsible for any of these lone wolf attacks right now, regardless of if there was any centralized coordinating whatsoever, because it feeds into this idea that they're bigger than they really are right now. Yeah, there's a, an interesting Twitter campaign that's happening now in France, um, basically translated as ISIS claims, where they're hashtagging basically everything that hasn't gone you know, their way in the past year and saying that it, it must be attributable to ISIS because it seems all too easy to link um, singular atrocities to ISIS when, as the evidence shows in Nice, there wasn't really any connection between the, organize, the organization and the individual. And so, that being said, it's, it's clear, though, that they were inspired by. So the fact of the matter is what ISIS has been so good about good about, uh, with, as in the operative word, but what they've been really good with is their media strategy, which has included using their foreign fighters in a range of different languages. So creating French-specific propaganda to a range of ages, everything from calling for eight to 10-year-olds to come and join them, all the way up through militants and trying to export combatants in the native tongue, with native slang, using localized context, relating it to people. And so that relational approach seems very personalized and it does inspire people much more than a mass, like in the previous iterations of jihadism, where we'd see a mass call to arms in Arabic with subtitles below it in a range of different languages. This is much more personalized. And so it's kind of, it's, it's early in the process and in the investigation, but to what extent do we think this man was influenced by ISIS? We can go back to this question, I suppose, before that we talked about causes and justifications. To what extent was this someone who saw their material, thought, I'm, I'm going to wage a jihad and, and carry it out? Or, or to what extent is this someone who is just justifying their violence or maybe not even that? Maybe we're just placing this on him. Well, the investigation is still ongoing. But um, from the interviews that have been conducted with close friends and family thus far, it seems like this was an individual that had a history of violence from a very young age, as his father you know, said repeatedly. This is someone who had separated from his wife, was was isolated in Nice, didn't have very much money, had a history of attacking police officers and motorists. He was arrested in May of this year. Um, and so clearly this is someone who is at risk, I think, for violent behavior. But what's, what's the most shocking is that this was someone who didn't go to mosque regularly. He wasn't thought to be a particularly religious person. Which just goes to show that, you know, perhaps he was convicted um, in, his, in his final days of the, of the real meaning of ISIS and what ISIS was trying to do, but, but maybe not. And maybe, that, maybe this is just a convenient um, sort of justification, so to speak, um, for an act of outrage at a society that he felt had marginalized him. I mean, actually, what's most interesting is that it's not shocking that he was not part of a greater Muslim community, that he was not actually practicing Islam on a daily basis because when we profile a range of foreign fighters that had left to join ISIS or individuals that have carried out a range of Islamist extremist related attacks, 
most of them were not raised in fully religious families, did not actually have a strong background in the religion, had loosely connected themselves more to the political and violent side of the ideology rather than the religious side. So we've even seen cases last year where a foreign fighter was caught having an Amazon order of Islam for dummies before leaving. Mm -hmm. You know, we're actually seeing people that are loosely connecting to an ideology and the extremist ideology almost provides an umbrella that can hold and carry all their discontent. So all the little grievances that are building up, such as a wife leaving you, feeling alienated, not feeling like you belong in society, joblessness, perhaps some natural violent tendencies, all of a sudden this ideology justifies it and empowers you. So not only does it say, we know we sympathize with you, all your grievances about the government and your life are correct, but you're a hero. You're not this smaller individual that feels lost. You're actually a hero that can make a difference. And it's that sort of empowerment language that's so dangerous with these ideologies. Yeah. I think just to link it back to the Gavin Long case, I think one really interesting similarity between them when, you know, they had both had different justifications for their acts of violence was this self-concern with being a hero, with self-improvement, with somehow making society better, purifying society through an act. Um, and it's just quite interesting, you know, that this was, these were different movements, different ideas that seemingly led them to act in that way. And how quickly can this happen then? I mean, you, as you say, it's kind of often people don't come from a background where they're steeped in these ideologies. Um, in Gavin Long's case, he just sort of leapt between different groups. Can can a few Twitter messages persuade you to go out and do this? Or, you know, what's the, what's the process? What's the speed here? Well, when we talk about online radicalization, we should be very clear that the internet does not completely auto-radicalize you. Because any one of us, you don't go online shopping for shoes and accidentally become a jihadist. You don't just accidentally start receiving terrorist propaganda. Uh, actually, this there's usually an offline trigger, an offline individual or factor or media that starts involving you in a subject that leads you into a pathway. But very quickly, what the internet can do is it becomes a self-selective vacuum of information. So just like any one of us, you follow who you want to follow on Twitter. You start filtering the types of news feeds that you agree with, and you start preaching to the choir and receiving just the people that you think justify what you're listening to. And we're all pretty guilty of this usually, unless you guys are much better than I am. And so what that does is it's a catalyst, and it also provides a complete spectrum of socialization. The internet can become your family, your social group, your media source, your education, and very quickly, it can take that process that used to take months. And now when we look at foreign fighters at least, the shortest period we've seen is only a couple weeks of an individual that had banal rhetoric and then left for Syria. So it can be very quick, when, especially when you're pulling off of emotions. So in the Gavin Long case, when you're seeing atrocity around you, when you feel like your in-group, as however you define that, is under attack, it can be a very emotional journey very quickly and you feel like you are justified in taking action because you feel like you have no other option. I think the one consolation in that and the, you know, the scary number about three weeks becoming radicalized is that we've seen the same happen in reverse, where people have joined radicalized groups and committed their entire life to something and then realized that actually it was deeply problematic. The world is not black and white and then left despite all of the social capital they sacrificed in doing so. So I think we can see sort of an emotional pull on both ends and it's not an inevitable one-way one -way street. And how do then governments or charities or businesses um, 
intervene uh, to stop these people for whom, as you, as you said, Aaron, sometimes the internet becomes their entire life. Sometimes these things become their whole education. How do we how do we stop this and, and maybe get to an ideal scenario like the one you just described, Hillary, where people are being pulled back from this kind of stuff? Um, well, I think we can't expect governments to do everything, I think is the first thing that I would say. Um, governments have a unique position and ability to monitor um, suspected terrorists. Um, but as we discussed earlier, there are real limits to that. And there's risks of alienating local community leaders who are perhaps best positioned to identify problematic individuals and to work with them to pull them back from the ledge, so to speak, which happens a lot more often than I think we'd like to think. Um, and so I think it's it's something that, you know, we all have to be counterinsurgents, really, um, both in our own communities and in sort of increasing tolerance and finding ways to combat an idea, which ISIS ideology ultimately is an idea with another idea, um, an idea of openness and tolerance and liberalism, really. Well, there's there's also a big difference between, there's a lot of buzzwords about preventing violent extremism, countering violent extremism. Prevention and countering are two very different things. When we're talking about prevention, that's talking about, it's almost like medical terms, when preventative medicine is before you even have a symptom. So how do we have educational programs or programs with very younger people talking about extremism in a way that's more holistic, talking about cause and effect of violence in a way that's more tangible and emotionally relatable. But when we talk about countering, what do you do when somebody's already showing a symptom of belonging towards a violent ideology? Well, actually online, we're getting much more strategic. We can develop counter messaging with civil society. So you always have to work with the people on the ground because they are the credible voice. They're the people that know the community, their context. And actually, as you develop material online now, we can target material at individuals using the same sort of thing that Coca-Cola or Adidas would use to try to get a consumer and actually specifically try to target a certain age group within a locality based on their interests. So you could target boys age 15 to 20 that have an interest in white power music and like mixed martial arts. I don't know why the far right tends to like mixed martial arts. It's a trend we've picked up on. And you could just target your content only to them. So then when you start looking at your metrics about how many viewers and their engagement and reaction to content and did they follow on to other content, it's within a very specified target audience and you can try to start engaging. You can also directly try to contact individuals, not I wouldn't recommend this to the general public, but when you have service providers, either mental health service providers or former extremists that are networks that now work as mentors, we've actually piloted programs where you can directly have them contact someone that's at risk, that's showing signs, and just start a conversation. And what's the most surprising is that over 60% usually respond. They're desperate to just communicate, and there's a lack of dialogue with the hardest people to reach. So some thoughts there for governments that are facing this problem, but what about France, which is particularly struggling uh, at the moment? Um, Hillary, you said some friends of yours had spent time in Nice. What, what's the feeling there? What needs to change in the country? Yeah, I think I would say, first of all, I mean, it's obviously not just France. I mean, we've seen attacks in Bangladesh and Turkey and the United States. And so France is not alone. But the number of attacks in France, is, as you mentioned, is quite... Um, spectacular for such a short period of time. And and talking to some of my friends in Nice, I think there's a real sense of exasperation, you know, with the government at, the, at this point of, you know, how could this continue to happen? Um, 
is it Hollande's fault? I think there's a lot of division um, at the moment between the left and the right about what more could be done to prevent these kinds of attacks. And it's hard, you know, as we've been talking about today, to identify the people perhaps most at risk, especially when, in the case of the attacker in Nice, they didn't have really a significant affiliation with ISIS at all. Um, but that said, I do think there's something about the idea of France that makes it a prime location for these kind of attacks. Um, the idea of laïcité and secularism is perhaps best embodied by France more than a lot of other Western European countries. Um, and that is the idea, the very idea against which ISIS has pitted itself. And so it's, you know, as sort of random as these attacks often are, I don't think it's that surprising that this attack happened on Bastille Day, you know, the day of, of liberty and the people sort of coming to power together, um, that's sort of, to me, speaks to this kind of antagonism with Frenchness almost, or Western values. And France also has a very specific history with its Muslim population. It has a very controversial history with North Africa and the North African population still living in France. Uh, many individuals still, even if they're third generation individuals, don't call themselves French. They'll say that they're from North Africa, from Algeria or Tunisia. And there's also a huge issue within the prison system. So actually, in the Charlie Hebdo attacks, we actually saw that individuals had met in prison. You have individuals that are going into prison for a petty crime and coming out radicalized. And uh, rough estimates within prisons say that 50 to 70 percent of individuals in French prisons are actually from Muslim backgrounds. So there's issues of profiling. Uh, just like we could talk about in America as well, where we're talking about racial profiling of different sorts. And we're also seeing that France had the highest number of foreign fighters of Europe. So they've had a long-standing Islamist extremist networks that had towed the line of legality that perhaps hadn't been violent, but the ideology had been brewing under the surface for many years and was known about, and actually very little had been done. So as soon as you have a group like ISIS, they operationalized that sentiment. They took the sentiment that had been brewing for a long time and they turned it into an action. As a kind of final question, looking across both the cases we've discussed, looking across cases in other states, other parts of the world, um, do you both think that um, given the sort of effectiveness of these lone wolf attacks, given the power of some of these messages, is this what the terrorist threat is starting to look like increasingly? Are we going to see more and more of these kinds of attacks and fewer uh, large scale planned attacks um, by networks, coordinated people sending fighters across borders and, and that kind of thing? I guess it's it's really a little bit difficult to say. Uh, it takes a very specific type of individual that is willing to carry out a lone attack like this. We also have to question how alone. So in the Nice attack, how did that person arm themselves? Obviously, other people know. I believe there's been four extra arrests affiliated with that attack. So we kind of have to question how alone, even if it wasn't centralized. But at the same time, the call for lone actor terrorism has existed previously in our history, and it's usually a very smaller number of individuals that would ever be willing to do that. It's actually very hard to take up a gun, look at individuals in the eye, and start carrying out mass atrocities. Uh, however, we are at a critical juncture in Europe where, where ISIS is calling for this more and more across Europe. And for those marginalized individuals that had remained and hadn't perhaps joined the cause, uh, we should be kind of looking at how we can engage with them before it turns into a violent movement. And I think, you know, this is the fear is the tool in ISIS's toolbox, so to speak. And the worst thing that we can probably do is 
is overreact to these incidences and uh, attribute too much power and significance to ISIS. Because as we know, it's it's all too easy to claim an association with ISIS. It's all too convenient to use Islam as a justification. And at the end of the day, this seems to be, as you were saying earlier, you know, a sign of ISIS's losing control and territory and a sign of weakness, actually, in ISIS. So I think we have to sort of sort of hold our ground in um, our thinking about this. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much to Erin and to Hillary for coming in. Uh, thank you to everyone at home for listening. You can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if you can't wait that long, you can find Newsweek Europe in the shops or head to newsweek.com. Thank you very much. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.